France's former president, Nicolas Sarkozy, was convicted of corruption in Paris yesterday. We'll take the long view on what it means when a former head of state is found guilty of a crime. It might be eight months away to the day, but there's an election campaign underway in New York City. We'll discuss the latest from these early stages of New York's mayoral race. And we'll find out why Canada's National Mail Service is sending a blank prepaid postcard to every household right across the country. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Tuesday the 2nd of March and I'm Tomas Lewis and joining us today are Monocle's Europe editor at large, Ed Stocker, he's in Milan for us and from New York City, Henry Rees Sheridan. Ed, Henry, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Uh, Henry, we spoke last week about your preparations for Wales's National Day, St David's Day, which of course took place yesterday. I was just wondering how the festivities unfolded for you yesterday in New York City after that warning I gave you last week. Did you dust off the apron and get the Welsh cakes on the griddle? I, I got the stovetop hat and uh, uh, national uh, frilly dress out. Yes, and it was a day of uh, a day of dragons and daffodils and leeks as well, um, which is inexplicably a vegetable icon of Wales. And of course, it was all enhanced by uh, Wales's. Uh, uh, outstanding triumph over the England rugby team uh, recently as well, Thomas, which is an event that I know both you and I enjoyed. Yeah, absolutely. And we won't lord it over Ed being the lone English person uh, here in the room today, Henry. But Ed, how are you How are you doing in Milan this week? Uh, I'll just say there are plenty of people like me out there who don't understand the seemingly endless rules of rugby, but I'm I'm very good here in Milan. Uh, we had a, a visit from our chairman, Mr. Tyler Brule, last week, along with design editor Nolan Giles. So we were hot footing around Milan, having lots of face to face meetings, which uh, which felt kind of weird after so long of not doing that. Uh, lots of protocols in place, including one uh, institution that will remain nameless that insisted on double masking in order for us to uh, cross a threshold into the office uh, but and it a, a good time and and good to be out and about meeting people tom and despite the double mask said did it feel nice as you said there to sit across a table from someone and stare them in the eye rather than through a computer screen exactly exactly i mean breathing may partially difficult due to double masking uh it quite quite makes it quite easy to have a poker face when you when you're covered up that much but definitely really good just to have real life conversations as opposed uh to over video chat uh, even if it was slightly distanced well, I'm glad you made it out of those double-masked encounters, Ed, in one piece. Ed Stocker and Henry Sheridan, thanks to the two of you for being with us on the show today. Well, yesterday in Paris, France's former president, Nicolas Sarkozy, was convicted of corruption for attempting to bribe a judge in 2014 after he had left office. He was sentenced to three years in prison, two of which were suspended. Agnès Poirier is an author and journalist and a regular contributor on French affairs for us here on Monocle 24 and she covered the trial and a little earlier today she gave us this glimpse into how public sentiment towards the former president had changed since he left office in 2012. 
Nicolas Sarkozy brought a book that has been a bestseller in France called The Time of Storms, in which he really depicts himself as a long-suffering victim of a vendetta, if you'd like, by left-wing investigating judges who's been hunting down for years. And there's a rising, you know, uh, music in France and people are starting to feel sympathy for him because, indeed, it's been going on for a long time. And there are other investigations against Nicolas Sarkozy. So I think for the sake of the whole country, it would be good if all those cases, you know, draw to a conclusion one way or another and that uh, Nicolas Sarkozy serves his time not in prison. It looks as if he will be able to have a electronic tag and be confined to his home because he was uh, sentenced to three years in prison but only two uh, suspended. The journalist Agnes Poirier there speaking to us on today's edition of The Globalist. Um, Ed, what do you think, uh, looking on at the events, the proceedings in Paris yesterday from Milan as you are, what do you think yesterday's verdict means for Nicolas Sarkozy going, going forward now, do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously not good for him, not good for his brand, not good uh, for him going forward. I mean, he's really been embroiled in, I mean, scandals, really, essentially, since he's left office. I think there are some half a dozen uh, uh, inquiries into him. And next month, he's facing another one uh, looking into uh, irregular campaign funding relating uh, to his re-election campaign, which he lost, of course, to Francois Hollande uh, back in 2000. And twelve, and there's even uh, a probe from 2007 into reported money that he received from Gaddafi in Libya that apparently arrived in a suitcase. Some murky funds there coming uh, from Africa. So uh, not good, really. He'll be hoping that all these uh, all these uh, inquiries will sort of pass. But, you know, as I said, he's been found guilty. We'll have to see what happens uh, uh, in his uh, appeal down the line. And really just sort of showing that authorities seem to be clamping down in former politicians in France. He is the first ex-president to receive a custodial sentence. Having said all of that, um, a former prime minister not so long ago was was handed a, a, a prison sentence for five years, three of which were suspended last year, in fact. That is Francois Fillon, the former prime minister, who created a fictitious job for his wife Penelope, paying her a grand sum of one million euros. Uh, and let's not also forget Jacques Chirac, who was something of a mentor uh, to Sarkozy, who in 2011 was handed a suspended sentence for two years. He, of course, died uh, a few years ago. So looks like authorities in France are clamping down, but it does say something perhaps about the political class in that country, Tom. And Henry, to widen the idea of the remit of, of legal challenges against 
former heads of state or government. Donald Trump in the US last week made his first appearance in public since being voted out of office in November. Uh, During that speech, he vowed once again to stand for the presidency in 2024. But the shadow for him over all of that is the significant number of individual legal cases that are all currently underway against him. What do we know at this stage about the stages some of those legal cases are at at the moment, Henry? There are nine civil and three criminal suits currently being pursued against Trump. I did propose before the show to do a top of the pop style rundown of all of them, but you shot down that idea by pointing out we didn't have the time. So what I'm going to do is run through three of the main categories of suit Uh, illustrating them with with one example from each category. So the first kind of type of claim which is being brought against suit are are civil suits that stem from his pre-presidential business dealings. These are kind of the classic uh, Trump historical corporate litigations. Uh, So an example of one of those which is ongoing at the moment is at a company called Ithaca Capital is suing Trump's hotel management company for fraud in a federal court in the US. And the primary claim which is being brought against Trump is that representatives of his company exaggerated the value of a Panama hotel uh, during Ithaca's negotiations uh, to uh, purchase it. Uh, Trump International, Donald Trump's company, has challenged uh, Ithaca's claims as is uh, his want, uh, and also asserted several counterclaims of its own, which are currently being hashed out in the courts. So that's the first category of of claim being brought against him, and there's several of those. The second is is, uh, uh, a type of category which has emerged more recently in Trump's career, and that's defamation claims from women who he allegedly assaulted. There have been several women who have come forward and said that he assaulted them uh, since he declared his run for presidency in 2016. One of those which is ongoing at the moment is uh, 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 that uh, Summer Zervos, uh, who is a former contestant on The Apprentice, Donald Trump's uh, erstwhile television show, has filed a suit against the former president for defamation after Trump claimed that her initial allegations of inappropriate sexual conduct were in fact lies, excuse me, designed to help the Clinton campaign against Trump uh, and also to boost Summer Zervis's personal uh, uh, brand. Um, Now, Trump tried to worm out of this one by filing a motion to dismiss it for the duration of his presidency that was thrown out and it's still being churned through the courts right now. Now, the third category of, of suit, and again, there are several there are several suits being brought against the president in each of these categories, is criminal probes that scrutinise Trump's attempts to overturn the results of the election that he lost last year, the 2020 election. So the NAACP's Legal Defence Fund is currently suing Trump and the Trump campaign and the Republican National Convention for their efforts to overturn the 2020 election in violation of both the Voting Rights Act and something called the Ku Klux Klan Act. 
which uh, was actually passed in 1871 and is designed to stop people from intimidating uh, black people from voting. And the claim is that Trump's efforts to discard votes in cities with large black populations actually violates this act. So this is, this is obviously the youngest of the three cases I've mentioned. And uh, uh, the, the, the summonses, uh, according to summonses, uh, defendants' initial answers are due in late April. So this, is, this has really only just begun. But yes, to, to recap, nine civil, three criminal, 12 suits in total currently being pursued against the former president. But of course, that's not anomalous in the context of his career and life. He's used to having several different lawsuits being pursued, him pursuing them and them being pursued against him at once. Uh, so he's experienced, at least in facing these multifaceted legal challenges. Well, we will be keeping our eyes on that sprawling set of legal processes, of course, against the former US president in the months to come here on Monocle 24. Well, next here on the late edition, we'll stay in the United States because in precisely eight months time on November the 2nd, New Yorkers will head to the polls to elect a new mayor. And Henry, uh, we are some time away, of course, from election day. But as things stand, what's the shape the race is taking at this early stage? Are people engaged with the fact that there is an election race underway? I suppose the sense could be that, you know, the ongoing pressures on a city like New York during this current stage of the pandemic could either mean voters are are pretty distracted or, in fact, are pretty energised by wanting to bring out a specific uh, vision for the city in whoever takes up the mayoralty next. What's the mood like from your vantage point in New York at the moment, Henry? I don't personally think that voters have a particularly clear idea of how they want to engage in the mayoral race at the moment for three main reasons. The first is that the political attention and energy in the state at the moment is very much focused on the governor's office, not the mayor's office. And that's because the state governor, Andrew Cuomo, is currently going through a political crisis facing several sexual harassment and bullying allegations. Uh, and so there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of attention being paid at the moment as to what his political future is going to be. And if it's going to be a short one, if, if he's not going to be in office for much longer, you know, there, there, are, there are noises being made that he might have to resign, who's going to replace him? That's getting much more attention than the mayoral race at the moment. Um, the second is that there's been uh, well, it's just, it's just a very complicated race. There are over 50 candidates, even among candidates which are, who are, uh, let's say, viable. There is a vast uh, 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 field of, of candidates who have good funding, good backing, uh, credible, uh, credible support from different sectors who, who, who are battling it out. And uh, I get the sense that if you went onto the street and asked people to name even the top five or six or eight candidates, they would struggle uh, to do so. Uh, The third reason is that there is a complicating factor in the actual voting process this year, which is that the, 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 the system of voting has moved to ranked choice voting. Now, this means that voters are going to be able to vote for five candidates if they like, ranking them from one to five, to win the mayoral race, a candidate has to win over 50% of the votes. If no candidate wins over 50% of the votes in the first round, 
a new round of voting is initiated which takes into account people's second choice votes and so on and so on until one candidate gets over 50%. Now, it's unclear how many voters understand this system. There was a local election in Queens in New York where this has been tried uh, and most voters did not engage with the ranking. They only voted for one candidate and left the bottom four slots unranked, which suggests that either they didn't understand it or that they were unmoved to utilise it. Uh, uh, so, so that's another complicating factor, and people don't know how that's going to benefit certain candidates versus other candidates, how much understanding the voters have of it. So uh, it's a pretty muddled picture at the moment, uh, in my opinion. And Ed, you're our former editor in New York City. From that muddled picture, as, as Henry laid out for us, perhaps you can bring us a bit of a longer view, therefore, of the, the trajectories historically of of mayoral campaigns in New York City. And who, in your mind, uh, is standing out so far among this huge number of candidates who have so far thrown their hats into the ring for the mayoralty in New York? Yeah, I mean, it's it's super interesting, isn't it? I think there are something like 22 candidates and the vast majority of them uh, are Democrats. Uh, obviously, uh, the city of New York is a very blue metropolis, uh, three Republicans running. Uh, look, Bill de Blasio has sort of uh, been a figure that has left a, a strong mark on the city of New York, Uh Rudy Giuliani as well before him, even Michael Bloomberg. These are strong figures. De Blasio's really left a very mixed uh, uh, legacy, I'd say. Uh, He started off extremely popular, but one couldn't really say the same of him today. Obviously, he was very much sort of representative of a multicultural New York. He has a black wife and a biracial son and... And, you know, that son was very uh, present in his campaign video when he first uh, won won in New York City. Uh, There was a a very famous political spot that uh, had his son sort of backing up his father uh, that was instrumental in his victory. I think it's really tricky to say uh, who might win this and and where this is going to go. Obviously, it's a very diverse field for this new mayoral election. And much has been made of, of, of sort of two uh, black potential mayors who are who are representing the Democratic Party that are going head to head in the primary. One sort of a blue collar uh, former police chief um, who was a favourite for a long time to win. Also a very committed vegan who's even written a health book and is into yoga and meditation. That's Eric Adams. And then there's uh, Ray Maguire who's a global, a former global executive at, at Citibank, uh, you know, an Ivy Leaguer uh, who had a video uh, for him narrated by Spike Lee. Uh, so these two figures are sort of vying uh, for the uh, Democratic nomination. But uh, it is, as I said, a diverse field. Perhaps the most colourful of uh, the people running is a, a, a 28-year-old non-binary rapper called Paperboy Prince, who wants to, among other things, cancel rent for those uh, unable to pay during the pandemic. He wants to abolish the police. Obviously, that's been uh, a big topic or was a big topic, certainly uh, in the run up to the presidential election and and wants to have a, a universal basic income. Uh, 
paperboy prince uh, is not alone in that regard. In fact, uh, Andrew Yang, who you may remember, obviously, from running uh, for uh, the Democratic nomination in the presidential election, is also a colourful character uh, who uh, is in the running for the Democratic ticket. He wants to do um, quite interesting things as well, and he wants to bring in a universal basic income as well. And you remember that from the presidential race, he was he had lots of uh, interesting ideas and was quite kooky and was often very informal, didn't like to wear a tie. He wants 500,000 low-income New Yorkers to receive uh, 2000 dollars a year and he's also proposing a casino on governor island but yeah just to, just to summarize to end briefly that's the amazing thing about new york city it you know it brings everyone from a, a former presidential candidate to a rapper to uh, uh, someone who's made a career in health and and wellness together plus plenty of other people in between it's a it's it's a colourful and interesting list, and it'll be interesting to see as this process develops. A like Henry was saying, if New Yorkers will be able to get more engaged once the heat uh, is taken off Andrew Cuomo, however however that may be, uh, and B how that list gets whittled down and who ends up being uh, amongst the finalists, and it, and it, it seems a given that it will be a Democrat who finally wins this. Well, there are eight months to go until Election Day in New York, but we will be keeping our eyes on proceedings there in the months to come. Well, finally, here on the late edition. Stop, whoa, yes, wait a minute, Mr. Postman. Wait, wait, yeah, yeah, That melody by the Carpenters, of course, might be on the minds of many Canadians this week as they check their mailboxes, because Canada Post, Canada's national mail service, is sending one blank postcard to each household right across the country. That's around 13.5 million households. The idea is for the recipients to write a message on the card and to mail it to someone anywhere in Canada that they've been isolated from during the pandemic. The postage has been paid for by Canada Post. Um, Ed, I independently of all of this, took up postcard and letter writing in a pretty aggressive way last year. It just felt like a sort of fairly targeted, thought out, maybe more meaningful way of keeping in touch with people and maintaining these lines of contact than the sort of, you know, Zoom meetings or Zoom parties and things that become so so routine for so many of us during all of this. What do you make of this this postcard campaign by Canada Post? I think it's a really nice idea. And I have to say, Tom, um, I, I, I'm impressed with this uh, taking up letter writing again uh, idea. I think it's, um, you know, it's a bit of a lost art. It's so easy uh, not to do something like that. I think both Canada Post and, and, and you, let's bring you into this, Tom, you as well. Um, you know, it's about going that extra mile, making a bit more of an effort. And I think uh, I think it's a good thing to do. Personally, I haven't managed that. I would love to sit down um, and, and write a letter to someone, send postcards. I always say, I always say I'm going to send my grandmother a postcard when I go somewhere back in the day when I actually travelled somewhere. Um but just don't do it. I'm out of the habit. I remember 10 years ago, 15 years ago, showing my age here, 
It used to be a big thing. Everyone used to write letters to each other, used to receive postcards. Uh, People corresponded like that, or maybe even 20 years ago or 25 years ago. Maybe I need to go back further. Um, But it has become a lost art, and I think it's a, a slower way of doing things. It allows you to show off your handwriting, uh, and and I'm all for it because I think actually without sounding too much like uh, a fuddy duddy oldie, I, I imagine that you know younger generations because they are simply using their computers and their phones and texting and and not knowing how to spell because they're using text speak are actually forgetting the art of being able to write nicely having nice calligraphy being able to write so anything that encourages that i think being old school i think it's a good thing yeah i picked up uh, a pen pal actually last year ed and i've written about it very briefly for the next issue of monocle magazine but i hadn't i don't think i've ever sort of written a quite long involved letter to someone I didn't know before, not since I was a child, for sure. And there was something so energising and freeing about just jotting down these little thoughts and and details uh, or whatever, kind of in a letter to someone that you don't know. It almost felt like it made you more sort of honest in kind of what you're going to say. I was a bit a bit worried that I'd I'd um, scared my pen pal off in my first letter. I'd written like five scrawly pages of of everything that was going on in my life at the time, and thankfully she wrote back, and we're still writing to each other. And it's really been a bit of a magic moment throughout all of this for me and Henry to turn this to you is putting pen to paper something uh something you enjoy to someone you know or even even you don't know like the the case of me and my pen pal well I actually tried to um take up letter writing earlier in the uh, pandemic probably the same impulse as you Thomas and I actually found uh, that I'd I'd forgotten how to write uh when I tried to do that by hand and so I've been forced into developing what can only be described as a reasonably complex system of kind of folk hieroglyphics in order to uh, send letters and postcards to my friends and family. I'm not sure if they can understand them, um, but I'm developing a kind of key uh, in order to use, uh, to uh, interpret them, which I'll be uh, mailing out with uh, future editions. I should say, Thomas, I've, I've really enjoyed all of the postcards that I've received from you. Uh, and uh, I, I do hope that uh, you, you will be able to interpret my responses when they arrive. <laughs> They got lost in the post, Henry, I think, to coin a phrase. Uh, But if any of you out there feel like putting pen to paper and writing us a little postcard, we promise we will reply. Ed Stocker and Henry Rees Sheridan, great to have you both with us on the programme today. That is all for today's late edition. Sam Impey edited today's programme in London. Thanks very much to her, as always, too. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Thomas Lewis, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. (laughs) 